Gresham College presents To Sing and Dance by Professor Christopher Page. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the third lecture in my series on music, imagination and experience in the medieval world. And my subject today is entitled To Sing and to Dance. And I began last week with the life of a saint. Well, this time I'm going to open with something that is perhaps even more unlikely, you might think, to reveal anything much about uh, lighter and more festive sides of medieval music and musical experience. I'm referring to a dossier that was assembled early in the 14th century to make the case for the canonization of a particular bishop. Although the Catholic Middle Ages have long been presented in Protestant tradition, and of course not only there, as a time of superstition and mystification, Nothing falsifies that picture, I think, quite like the painstaking and even forensic way in which monks and clergy assembled the materials to support their claim that someone from their diocese, someone from their church perhaps, was a candidate for sainthood and should be admitted to the ranks of the blessed. Our candidate in this, in this case is a certain Thomas Cantilupe, who was Bishop of Hereford, and I have to tell you that he died in the year 1282. Now, as you might expect, especially if you heard my last lecture in this series, a great deal of this canonization dossier is concerned with the miracles of healing the saint is supposed to have performed. Now, one of these accounts, presented with almost legalistic care and attention to detail, casts a shaft of light upon events one Sunday in the rural parish of Marsden, approximately five miles from the city of Hereford, during the spring season. I'm going to read you an extract from the deposition of a witness who was called before the procurator of the chapter of Hereford and a Roman delegation that was present to keep an eye on things. And I quote it. The witness stated that about 15 years or more ago, around the time when rumours were going about concerning the miracles of God said to have been performed by Master Thomas of Hereford, it happened one Sunday in April, before the Feast of the Martyr of St. George, that's the 23rd of April, that there was a certain beer tavern in the parish from which the witness came, that's to say, of Marsden, in the house of Walter de la Weil. The witness went with his wife Cecilia to that inn after the service of Nones, along with a good hundred people, or thereabouts, from the aforementioned parish. When they went to the inn, they left in their home, along with her other brothers and sisters, their daughter, Joanna. But when they came close to the inn, they saw Joanna, who was then about five years old, following them, and they weren't concerned, because there were many other neighbours' children there. But after Joanna had been standing for a little while in the said inn with the other children, in the presence of the witnesses and many others, she went out with other children, and entered the garden of the inn, where there was a certain pool, either used as a fishery or a fish pond. It ran to a depth of six feet or thereabouts, and there was a broad ditch, 24 feet across and about 60 feet long. Joanna went into this garden, approaching the pool, fish pond, and started to throw pebbles into it. But... While they were throwing stones into the pool, a certain John, who was the same age as Joanna, 
pushed her towards the pond in order to frighten her. She fell into the water and sank beneath the surface. The witness and the others were unaware of what had happened, and according to their custom and manner, once they'd finished their drinking, the young members arranged themselves into a dance or carol and wound their way through the garden near to the ditch in which the said Joanna had sunk. Some people in the carol saw the girl's clothes in the water and saw her lying motionless at the bottom, and they believed that it was the daughter of Christine de Greenway who came from that same parish and who was a destitute woman along with her daughter, and that because of the anguish of poverty and misery, Christine had thrown her daughter into the ditch. I end the quotation there. Needless to say, the miracle that Thomas of Hereford performed in this case was to restore the drowned child, namely Joanna, back to life. But since my theme today, as I said at the beginning, is song and dancing, I'm sure you can see why I've lingered over that report. It gives an exceptional glimpse, after all, of a dance taking place as a matter of course, almost of village routine, one day long ago in the Middle Ages. And it all happens because the young people, according to their custom, are dancing in the garden of a long-gone Herefordshire tavern. Such dances performed in a ring, or sometimes in a line, often with the dancers holding hands and singing, were commonly called carols. They were a constant feature, in fact, of medieval life in the villages and towns, and there's an illustration of one from an Italian source on the handout, and I'll be returning to the issue of why it only shows women. You'll not be surprised, I think, to hear that the civil and ecclesiastical authorities of the Middle Ages often disproved of these dances. We're dealing here with something very ancient, in fact, in the civilization of the Middle Ages, both the dancing and the disapproval that was aimed at it. In the year 597, for example, the clergy gathered for the Third Council of Toledo in the Kingdom of Visigothic Spain, fulminated against what they called an impious custom the people often observe it on feast days of the saints, and it is utterly to be stopped. Those who should be at divine service keep watch with dances and obscene songs, not only harming themselves, but also disturbing the offices of churchmen. This holy synod commits this matter to the care of the bishops and judges, so that the custom may be vanished from all Spain. Notice the reference to keeping watch in that passage. Christian holy days, like those of the Jews on which they're based, begin the evening before, so these dances were nocturnal affairs, vigils, that's to say, through the night hours with fires and torches while the clergy and monks were trying to sing their night office. Trained musicians of the Middle Ages, insofar as we know their views, were inclined to look down on the music performed for such dances, which was no doubt often relatively simple, tuneful, and rhythmic, as, as dance music usually is. There's only one explicit remark from a musician working and writing in England, a trained musician, that is. And we find his comment in an early 15th century commonplace book where he mentions what he calls rondelles, ballads, carols, and springes, presumably some kind of springing or leaping dance. And he says, I quote him, I don't need to discuss the music of these because they're fantastical and frivolous and no composers of music have exerted their art or knowledge upon their texts. Well, 
unfortunately for us, that author was quite wrong. You'll remember the gospel story of the massacre of the innocents, the children whose murder was ordered by Herod in the hope that the newborn king would be found and killed in the general massacre. The Catholic Church of the Middle Ages celebrated the Feast of the Holy Innocents on the 28th of December. Now, most great churches, as you can imagine, in the medieval period had their staff of choir boys, often called the Innocents or Innocentes. And the song you're about to hear was written for that feast and was to be sung, I strongly suspect, by the choir boys and altar servers and quite possibly to be danced as well. For the tradition of clerical dance in the Middle Ages is richer than you might suspect. The text runs like this. Let our company of boys, rejoicing with great joy, celebrate in song and dance this anniversary feast. In honor of the innocents, let harps and drums sound, let songs and instruments witness to a happy mind. Rightly festive, let us rejoice and be merry with the court of heaven. Aya, let sport and gladness, laughter, peace and courtesy make up the household. Boys, let us rejoice. Herod is dead. We have conquered. Our enemy is overcome. Suffering eternal torment, he will not be able to rise again. And we shall follow the immortal lamb wherever he may go. Rightly festive, let us rejoice and be merry with the court of heaven. Aya, let sport and gladness, laughter, peace and courtesy make up our household. Magno cadens nostra salat dances were often performed in churchyards, which is another ancient practice. It was in such open spaces, and especially to the land around churches and other ecclesiastical foundations, that the dancers in the towns and cities tended to congregate. The author of one treatise, for example, specifically attacks the dancers 
for choosing a place dedicated to saints, while the French Dominican, Guillaume Pailout, of whom we'll be hearing more, because he's the author of the most elaborate of all the surviving tracts against these dances, he says the dancers do grave offence to a saint when they dance in a place dedicated to him or to her. An anonymous treatise on confession, which is now in Oxford in the Bodleian Library, confirms the suspicion that these places dedicated to saints were often the cemetery lands around churches for the author inveighs, as well he might, against carols performed around the bodies of the dead. A revealing story from the later 12th century tells of a priest in the Diocese of Worcester who was trying to sleep one night, but couldn't because the dancers in the churchyard were singing the same dancing song over and over again with a refrain that kept coming back, which is what, of course, refrains do. The refrain was in English, and the author I'm following, Gerald of Wales, who's writing in Latin, actually breaks out of Latin to give the, give the text in the vernacular, in English. It was sueta limandinara, my beloved, your favour. The next day, when the priest was standing at the altar for mass, and the moment arrived for him to sing, Dominus cum." you've guessed it, he sang, We don't have the music to that, by the way, I just made that up, and I'll make you a free gift of it, which caused a public scandal. The Bishop of Worcester banned the song from being sung in his diocese, a ban that was no doubt singularly ineffective, but which shows that a song and a dance can be a dangerous thing. The carols were company dances and often prearranged events which took place on or near the feast days of saints as a kind of informal, you might think a carnivalesque counterpart to the official celebrations of the church's service and seeking the same spot of holy ground. Remember that the dance described in the dossier of Bishop Thomas Cantilupe took place on the Sunday before St. George's Day a detail which I think is just as significant as the late April, and therefore springtime setting, of the events described. The presence of the dead, who were, after all, not really dead, just waiting for the last trump, was no disincentive. I'm reminded of the last stanza of Philip Larkin's poem, Church Going, on the residual power of a church, even for those who are not devout. Let me quote it to you. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies, and that much never can be obsolete. Since someone will forever be surprising, a hunger in himself to be more serious, and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. To find out more, about the dances of the medieval squares, churchyards, and streets, we can turn to the writers who disapproved of them so strongly that they can't resist telling us about them, giving details, in other words, of what it was that they so loathed. In other words, we've got a great deal to learn from those who denounced the dances in their sermons, treatises on the seven deadly sins, for example, or in their manuals for confessors. Here, as an illustration, is a cautionary tale preserved by the Dominican friar Thomas of Cantimpre, in his collection of stories entitled The Bonum Universale di Apibus, completed in 1263. 
It reveals the kind of material, I think, that many such works preserve, but it also shows how information bearing upon the social history of the music in the Middle Ages is to be found in literary sources where, to be frank, it is least expected. The guiding theme of much of what I have to say in this season of Gresham Lectures is exactly that. The mere title of Thomas's work, which translates as a universal prophet extracted from the study of bees, is enough, I think, to make it seem unlikely that we're going to learn much about dancing, but the location of the material within the book is more surprising still, for it appears in a section on clairvoyance. I quote, Here is a cautionary tale of a physician who predicted that a girl singing sweetly was about to die. By means of it, I shall prove to you that men of great skill can predict the future. There was a count of Lersberg in the province of Brabant, named Ludwig, who had a highly expert physician in his household. One day, when his passage through a certain town led him past to Carol, a girl with a beautiful face and a wonderful sweetness of voice was leading the dance. The Count crossed the town with his retinue and admired her excessively for about an hour. When the physician saw him in this reverie, he said, You marvel, Count, at the voice and beauty of the woman who leads the dance? You should rather marvel that she is about to die. These words were scarcely out of the physician's mouth when a mighty wailing went up in the town, and he learned, having sent messengers there to find out, that the girl had suddenly collapsed and died. An English theologian of the early 14th century, the Dominican friar John Bromyard, reveals one of the most, I think, striking stories about the carol. In his manual for preachers, entitled Summa Predicantium, Bromyard tells how some saintly men approached a city. I quote, They saw a demon sitting upon the ramparts of the city, and when he was asked why he sat there alone, he replied, I don't need the help of anyone, because all the city is obedient to us, the forces of the devil. Entering the city, they found the population in a state of the greatest dissoluteness, that is to say, dancing carols unoccupied with diverse other entertainments. Terrified, they left that city. The saintly men in this story had stumbled across a city in holiday mood, I should think, perhaps celebrating the day of a patron saint. Given that my overarching theme is the sheer unlikeliness of the places where we can find information about medieval musical life and experience, I'd like to continue excavating pieces of music with a dance connection from corners where you might not expect them. You're now going to hear a melody embedded in a three-part composition of the 13th century with a text in Latin that celebrates the passage of the Israelites over the Red Sea. Given the shape of the melody and the way it keeps returning as a refrain, I suspect the composer was thinking of the dance of Miriam with her timbrel and fellow female dancers, which the account in Exodus 15.20 places after the safe crossing of the sea. The text in translation runs, free from mud and brick, the Hebrew freely passes over, a new man marked with a new sign, on dry foot with a pure mind, the Hebrew freely crosses, cleansed by the waters of baptism. In sicomente munda, 
The texts we have say little about the choreography of carols, and there was perhaps no single way of dancing them. And to judge by scattered references in the sermon literature, the dances might be convened in various ways. By a minstrel playing a wind instrument in the streets, for example, by someone beating a drum, or by the appointed leader calling out through the streets, a la touche de caroles, come to the touch hand touching of the dances. Once convened, the dance could take various forms, that much is clear. And no doubt the place chosen for actually doing the caroling was a decisive factor in establishing the actual shape of it. In some contexts, for example, there was abundant room for a common location for these dances, often mentioned by the moralists, is a public square, or in Latin, platea, giving us the French word place, meaning, for example, a market square. We also read of dances in the thoroughfares, which explains why an anonymous preacher adorns his section on the carol with Ecclesiasticus 9.7, do not look around you in the streets of the city. On these occasions, it would often have been impractical to dance in a ring, and we may therefore understand, I think, why Guillaume Pairaut refers to what he calls the procession of the carol, and another author to the carol as a processio diabolica, a diabolic procession, suggesting that the dances were sometimes performed in a line, as very narrow medieval streets would often have required. When the place chosen was a churchyard, however, or a town square, the carol often took the form of a ring. And the sermon materials are really very explicit about this detail. According to Pairaut, who I told you would keep coming back, the dancers often moved in a circular motion, moto circulari. And the basic position was for the dancers to hold hands, whence the call alla touche de carolas, to the touching of the dancing, a detail which moralists found particularly disturbing, the physical contact. You can see this on the handout, this touching of hands, which constituted one of the formal categories of sin which carolers committed, a sin of physical touching or contact. But it's clear that the clasping of hands was sometimes released, was sometimes undone for clapping, accompanied by stamping, Whence Pyrout's use of Ezekiel 25.6, because you have clapped with your hands and stamped with your feet. You'd be amazed, by the way, you really would be amazed how much of the Bible the preachers and homilists found useful describing and attacking these dances. The circular motion of the dance, which often led to the left, could also be interrupted, to judge by Pyrout's references to dances that go back and forth to the right and to the left. Well, on great feast days of the church's year, the dance could become a major public event. And the preachers attacked the way that young women preened themselves for the occasion. Now, the amount of detail in these polemics against the dances really is extraordinary. And when I first came across it, I almost couldn't believe it. We hear, for example, of girls adorning themselves with wigs made from the hair of dead women, painting their faces and accepting garlands from their sweethearts. Some wore pearls to the dance, according to one moralist, and those unable to adorn themselves in this way looked on with jealous eyes, blushing, as he claims, with shame and envy. Well, it would be wrong to present the carol as an entertainment restricted to the young. That would be a, a grave mistake. Though it's certainly what we met in the story about the parish of Marsden, with which I began. The social meaning of these dances, what counted about them for people was, I think, more comprehensive than that, was wider than just something the young do. 
Sermons and treatises on the seven deadly sins, where carols are often described and attacked under the heading of illicit desire or luxuria, uh, reveal that old women sometimes took their place in the dances. Usually, though, the, the texts do imply, perhaps unfairly, that the dances were too strenuous for the elderly. The English Dominican John Bromyard, who's come up before, he's very eloquent on, on this subject, reveals that old women were usually content to lead the girls to the dance, just as, he says, old knights lead young squires to the field. While another account cruelly confirms this picture, with a, a more than a touch of misogyny, adding that these wrinkled old women lend their dancing clothes to the young girls. A touch of misogyny, certainly, it runs through much of this material and needs to be uh, reflected on. Presumably, these clothes were more traditional than they were fashionable, and it's tempting to believe that many other details of the carol, including the music, were traditional in the same way. Well, since caroling was closely associated with holidays granted for the feasts of the most important saints of a region, and since carols often seem to have taken place in an urban environment, it's possible that many different social classes came together in them. The daughters of peasant families in town for the holiday, middle-class women with a husband among the burgesses. Did the daughters of local nobles take part? A passage in a sermon by the Franciscan Nicolas de Bayer suggests that the daughters of good, indeed noble families, didn't join the carols in the towns, but rather stayed at home, busy with their private devotions. But that is surely wishful thinking. I quote him. A noble dog, while others fight in the town, will sit at home peacefully and remain silent. So noble girls, daughters brought up in the most respected fashion, will stay in the house sitting and praying while others sing in a carol. One rather unexpected side of the carol emerges when we recognize how frequently, and throughout the Middle Ages, the dance songs that were sung and often apparently composed by women were satirical, or even, as we might now say, political. A 12th century life of the Anglo-Saxon rebel, Heriwood the Wake, records that, and I quote, the people of the region of Ely praised Heriwood above all others, Women and girls sang of him in their carols. We might compare this passage from the 13th century life of a, of a French saint, Arnold of Villers. I quote, One day, a wanton and impudent woman came to him saying that she wished to improve her condition, subject to him wishing to help her in the necessaries of life. He, keen for the salvation of a neighbor, agreed to her request and gave what he could to the woman. She, however, going away and mocking the simplicity of the man, composed a song about him and sang it, leading a carol. According to the Dominican friar Guillaume Pairaut, the refrain of one carol sung by young women was Pauvre Marie, fille, fie on you, wretched husband. For the history of lyric and song in medieval England, one of the most important aspects of the carols is their use of a refrain a recurring section of music and poetry quite distinct from the verse. I really want your ears to seize this without you actually seeing the text printed out. So here again are the two verses of Magno Gaudens Gaudia. Magno Gaudens Gaudia Nostra Pueritia Salat Contripudio Protec Natalia Sonnet lyre timpana, 
Many of the manuals that were written for the use of priests and friars, required or licensed to hear confession, reveal the church's battle against carolers from, you might say, the front line. These handbooks sometimes give lists of questions which confessors may wish to put to penitents during confession. So these are some of the very words which laymen and laywomen in the cities and villages heard as they knelt to be shriven, the pleasures of the carol seeming very remote, perhaps even dreamlike in the discomfiture of the moment. So, for example, in a section entitled Concerning Pride, the priest or friar must, I quote, inquire whether the penitent has celebrated carols, which may be done in many ways, in assembling together, in buying fine clothes, in disturbing young girls, and in doings of this kind. Carols come into view a second time when the confessors turn to the sin of luxuria, not quite the same as lust, but often encompassing it. There, amidst questions about visiting prostitutes and courting widows, we find are these pointers to a confessor's catechism. Inquire whether the penitent has polluted himself with a prostitute, deflowered a virgin or visited a widow. Inquire also whether the penitent has taken part in carols much or in spectacles of this kind or delighted in others. Well, in the eyes of many churchmen, as I'm sure you've begun to realize by now, the carol was a diabolic substitute for the holy liturgy, often taking place at the same time and quite nearby. One story tells that there was a certain young man who was the most devoted of carolers, and for this reason he liked to take part in every single carol that was going forward, perhaps obeying that summons a la touche de carolers heard in the streets. Since his parents were in danger of being brought to poverty by this, presumably because of his expenditure on clothes or on the girls whom he met there, they shut him up in a high chamber and locked him in chains. In that same hour, a carol passed through the street, and the young man leading it was in every way like their son. But it was actually Satan, no less, the devil. The parents not realizing that this diabolical impersonation was taking place and thinking that their son must have broken out of captivity, ran to the chamber where they found him chained up as before. Astonished, they came angrily to the carol, calling out to the young man that he reveal his identity. He said, with due candor, 
I am the devil, whose liturgy your son used to perform. And since you hold him bound in chains so that he can no longer conduct the liturgy he was wont to celebrate with such keenness, I'm doing this for him and for myself. Strange though it may seem, and especially in the light of that story, some parents actually encourage their children to attend carols. Pideout tells how mothers adorned their daughters and led them to the dance. Special clothes, floral garlands in the hair, the generous application of striking facial cosmetics. These and other details recorded in the sermon literature suggest, don't you think, that carols could function as a marriage market in which young girls of marriageable age could be shown to potential suitors, could actually take them by the hand, pull them into the dance, and so on. Well, I end with something that may have been in your mind all along especially since it will soon be Christmas. Surely all these references to carols have something to do with the Christmas carols we know and love. Well, yes, they do, in a way. These dances gave rise to a common form in Middle English poetry, where the poem begins with a refrain, has a verse, go back to the refrain, has a reverse, and so on. The rule being that you, can all, you must always begin with a refrain, alternate refrain and verse, and must end with the refrain. This is what medieval English poets knew as carol form, and there were indeed carols of Christmas, as of many other festivals. As you can imagine, the alternation of refrain and verse derives from the dancing songs where the company would sing the chorus of the song and the soloist reply with the verses. So here to end and to draw you towards Christmas is one of the finest of the medieval English carols with its original music. So here to end and to draw you towards Christmas is one of the finest of the medieval English carols with its original music. And I'm going to read the text first in Middle English, but I'm only going to say the refrain once, though of course it should be between every verse and at the end. It's a lullaby carol. Lulai, lulai, lai, lai, lulai, midera mother sing lulai. As he lay on Yule's nicht alone in Milonginge, Methought he saw a well fire sich the my her child rocking. The maiden wald with Uten song her child to sleep bring. The child him thought she did him wrong and bade his mother sing. Sing no mother, said the child, what shall to me befall hereafter when he come to eld, for so don't mother's all. Sweet a sunna, sighed a she, whereof shall he sing? Now wist he never yet more of there but Gabriel's greeting. He greet me goodly on his cane and sighed, Heil Maria, heil full of grass, God is with there, thou bearen shalt me see. He wandered Michel in me thought, for man wald he richt none. Marie he sighed, dread de nacht, that God of heaven alone. There, as he sighed, Either bar on midwinter nicht in maiden head wouldn car be grass of God almicht. The shepherds waked in the wall, they heard the wonder mirth of angels there as them they told the teeding of the bertha. Certainly this sicht he saw, this song he heard to sing, as he may lie, this yole is die, alone in me longing.
information please go to www.grusham.ac.uk